When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, maybe it's all for naught. Uh, good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Every day on this show, I've been trying to bring a different perspective to the Russia situation than what you're hearing in the rest of the mainstream media. And yet, it seems like tensions between the two greatest nuclear powers on the planet only seem to be getting worse. And unfortunately, the media diet of options, of uh, things that you can consume that aren't seemingly stoking the flames for war between the United States and Russia, or at least between Russia and Ukraine, is very, very slim. One of the people that you should make part of your media diet, though, is Kelly Vlahos. She has been one of my favorite writers, especially when it comes to foreign policy and military affairs for a long, long time. These days, she's a senior advisor with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. She's also the editorial director of Responsible Statecraft and the co-host of a terrific podcast called Crashing the War Party. Kelly, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Well, it happens to be true. Uh, whenever <laughs> I uh, make some sort of sense on uh, foreign policy or anything, really, it's usually because I'm parroting uh, something that I've read in one of your columns. So, th- well, thank you so much. Uh, so give us your overview of the Russia situation. We have a lot of listeners that maybe have not followed this situation as closely as I have. How do you see it uh, as in terms of where we, where we are in terms of getting to this point and where we're going? going? Well, I mean, at this very moment, I, I think that we're probably maybe in a better place than we were in about a week ago. I think there has been a lot of attempts by certain uh, special interests and, and including the White House to amp the panic up a bit about uh, an impending invasion of Russia into Ukraine. I, I think that from the people that I've been listening to uh, and looking at the signs everywhere, I don't think that it is as imminent as we have been told. And, you know, we just have to keep in mind that there are a lot of interests out there to see this thing escalate. And cooler heads should prevail. When you have Ukraine, you know, the, the president of Ukraine telling Biden that he doesn't want his people to panic and that he doesn't even think an invasion is imminent. We have to think twice and we have to think who benefits from a war with with Russia, who benefits from panic and, and then take a step back. I think that there are signs out there that the Russians don't want to invade at this very moment. They would they have basically kept the door open for for talking more about the issues. Is there room uh, for to be nervous? Sure, yes, because I, I do think that, you know, the Russians clearly have amassed tens of thousands of troops on the border, but the United States has, uh, you know, been talking out both sides of its mouth. On one hand, it says it wants to talk and it wants to negotiate. On the other hand, it has, it has basically said that it would not cede to any demands 
about uh, NATO expansion, which we know now is a red line of the Russians. So, you know, um, you know, at, at this moment, I think, you know, meeting with the Security Council, the meetings between Russia, Germany and France, uh, the continued talking uh, between the White House uh, and you know, their Russian counterparts, you know, let, let's let's hope that diplomacy prevails in this regard. Absolutely. I, I think that's something that everybody's rooting for. At least uh, everybody should be rooting for, for that. There's going to be a vote in Congress, possibly as early as this week, on uh, a proposal to increase aid, military aid to Ukraine and to increase sanctions on Russia. From where you're standing, would that be wise or unwise, both of those maneuvers? I believe very unwise. I, you know, sanctions seem to be the, the default tool of, of Democrats right now. They see sanction at sanctions as a, quote unquote, more humane way to wage uh, warfare against an adversary. But, you know, from what I've been reading and from the history of the use of sanctions, they don't necessarily work, first of all. And second of all, they end up hurting the very people that they were intending uh, to liberate, to help. And in this case, it would be the Russian people. I mean, it would go after the banks. So it would it would absolutely impact the economy in Russia, which, like every other country in the world right now, is not doing so well. And then it would it would impact the the energy situation. You know, uh, they they have a dependency on oil. And so it would actually go after oil production. But then they have this they have said that if you go after us with sanctions, we're going to start cutting off our natural gas uh, supplies and shipments. So it could actually trigger an energy crisis in 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 Europe or are the very people that we're supposed to be Mm. defending. Yeah. And so we really need to think this through. But Democrats wanting to look tough on Russia have decided that they're going to pass this, you know, they're they're the ones that are shepherding this bill, um, tough sanctions, but then also uh, mater- uh, military aid. And that would, you know, we, it would stop short of us actually putting our own troops on the ground, which nobody wants. But sending lethal aid to Ukraine, we know how this story goes. We start sending them guns and weapons and other material, and we end up getting entrenched in a war, in a proxy war. And, we, you know, we've seen that for the last 20 years that that doesn't necessarily work either. Uh, that is for sure. We're talking with Kelly Vlahos. You want to want to check out her podcast, Crashing the War Party. We may not have troops on the ground, but apparently we have put 8,500 American troops on alert. Was that the right move? You know what? I, I don't think it was the right move. Because if you you are seriously if you're serious about talking and keeping the door open for negotiations, I feel like throughout the entire last week it has been you know an effort to um, to basically ramp up the the panic. And I know what the White House is doing. They're showing or they're trying to show Putin, hey, we're tough. We're strong. We, you know, we have our own red lines and our own, our red line is, is no invasion of Ukraine and see we're activating our troops. But what does it really mean? You know, we I think Putin is smart enough to know that if we're, we may be 
activating troops, but we've said in every other way, we are not going to send troops into this theater if you invade. So he knows it's a bluff. So what I, I really don't know what the point is mm. other than to signal to the domestic audience that, no, we aren't going to cave to the Russian bear, you know, but in reality, we have no plans to go in there. And so it's very performative. And I think I think most people know that. And I think it just ends up escalating the tension and the panic. And, you know, from what I understand, you know, nobody wants to invest in Ukraine now. They're the ones that are tamping down the panic, because the more that Biden talks like this, the more that we talk about uh, activating troops and whatnot, the less that they're getting the people to invest in their own country and their economy is going down the toilet, which is already hurting. It's a great point. And uh, you alluded to the fact that the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, is trying to tamp down the tension a little bit. And he's downplaying the U.S. assessment of a Russian invasion being imminent. Now, why would we be trying to hype this invasion up if our allies in this whole situation, the Ukrainians, if they're not even saying that this invasion is imminent? Uh, You'd think we'd be on the same page with at least the public rhetoric, wouldn't you? Right. Well, I mean, in my, you know, in my estimation, and you can take it or leave it, I feel like this is a, this is, there's a, there's a, uh, a battle between the public perception and, and the domestic audience consumption and the, 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 the international reality. And I feel like in many cases, Biden is speaking to his domestic audience and showing particularly the Republicans, or he perceives to be the Republicans, and even the the hawks in his own party, that he's standing up to Putin and that he's not caving. And he does not want, whether it be in the 2022 midterms or the 2024 presidential election, to ever be um, called out for being soft on Russia. And so I think there is a lot of pressure on Biden uh, to show some sort of military strength, uh, to not be seen as uh, conceding to Russian demands. And so there's this push and pull going on. And then because then you'll, you'll see himself, but mostly Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, talk about uh, diplomatic channels, talk about talking, you know. And so there's just there's this sort of um, stovepiping going on between the, the diplomatic channel and then the, uh, the, the the showing of strength. And, you know, I guess if under a, a better, uh, more nuanced president, that maybe that kind of strategy might work on a certain level. But I think it's just coming off as confusing to people as to what is going on, what he really means. Right. Both domestically and internationally, there seems to be a lot of uh, confusion. You alluded to the the fact that sanctions on Russia would not only hurt a lot of the people that uh, they're intended to help, but that they were, were likely to be ineffective in achieving their goals. Now, we've had American sanctions on a lot of sectors of the Russian economy since the mm-hmm. annexation of Crimea. Uh, do you mean to say those sanctions haven't exactly worked out in terms of altering Russian behavior? Well, I mean, we're here. <laughs> we're talking about an imminent war. Uh, or an imminent, an, an imminent invasion of Ukraine and how we are going to be respond. We're activating NATO troops. 
uh, Security Council is meeting. I mean, we are in a heightened alert, you know, for the first time since 2014. So if these sanctions were supposed to modify Russian behavior, it hasn't worked. But like I said, this is the default tool of people who don't want to go to war. They don't want to push the brink militarily. So they think we'll just keep slapping sanctions on countries. But it's like it it didn't work in in Iraq when millions of, of, of innocent people starved while Saddam Hussein just blew us off. And it's not going to work here. It actually emboldens Putin. It emboldens the the national fervor of a country. You've seen that in Iran, too. I mean, we're still dealing with an Iran that is closer to building a bomb today than they were before Trump got out of the Iran deal and started slapping sanctions back in 2018. So clearly they don't work. So what should we be doing here? If you were advising the Biden White House, it seems like uh, getting troops ready is not the answer. It seems like sanctions uh, is not the answer. What should America be doing here in order to maybe bring an end to this conflict or at least tamp tensions down a bit? Well, I mean, I don't think, as I said earlier, I don't think Putin wants to invade Ukraine. He he wants these concessions on NATO, first and foremost, that we don't expand NATO any further. And so I feel like aggressive talking. Now, that sounds maybe that might sound a little pushy, but I feel like he's he's calling our bluff. Let's call his bluff. Let's keep talking because we have things on the table we can negotiate. NATO being one, you know, the Donbass region, two, autonomy for the Donbass region. Uh, we have the Minsk two agreements out there. We have a, a formula. We have something on paper that we can keep talking about. I feel like if we keep talking and shut up in terms of like the activating troops sending military, slapping sanctions, and we just focus on just meeting after meeting, you know, they seem to put off these invasion plans if they are even in the works every time there's a pending meeting. So let's just keep meeting and stop talking and flapping our gums and having these long press conferences with the Pentagon where he's talking about, well, you know, this is Kirby, the, you know, the uh, spokesman, basically saying, oh, well, we're going to let NATO decide. And, you know, and then the Brits come in and say, we're sending this and we're sending that. And I feel like all that, all that um, chest thumping in the media is, 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 is keeping the tensions on a certain trajectory. So I, you know, specifically, there are things we can be doing, but they involve talking. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a simple explanation, but it sounds like the most effective one. Talking with Kelly Vlahos, she is a senior advisor with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You know, uh, Kelly, we spoke uh, maybe about uh, 14 months ago when there was a series of articles uh, saying that the Russians were offering a bounty in Afghanistan to any Taliban fighter that uh, would have a uh, head of an American serviceman, basically that the Russians were paying bounties for uh, American troops being killed. 
that story turned out not to be true. You were one of the first people to say that story didn't sound right to you. Uh, the story of Russian collusion with the Trump campaign turned out to largely be, if not totally inaccurate, largely without evidence. Then uh, we see the story of the Havana syndrome, which we were told was largely a Russian plot. That now turns out not to be true. Why right. Why do so many in the American press and maybe even in the American public, why are so many of us willing to always believe a story that has Russia as this <laughs> Bond villain-like boogeyman? Why are we so gullible to keep believing these false Russian stories? Well, I mean, I think that goes back. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I mean, I grew up uh, believing the Soviet Union was the evil menace. And in many ways it was. I mean, we see what happened with Stalin. I mean, there, there, is, there is truth to this history. Um, but it's now 2022, and the Soviet Union is gone. And we're looking at a, a, a different country now, a shadow of its former empire. Uh, Putin is not a great guy. And in many ways, he is somebody that we abhor and that we would never um, elevate to any stature in this country, I hope. Um, but that all aside, you know, uh, this feeling like that we have to keep, and, and a lot of this is entrenched in the so-called deep state, where you have agencies like the CIA, you like, uh, in just our, in the Pentagon, in our intelligence services, the State Department, that have been groomed to believe that they are still sort of an extension of the, the Soviet Union. And so there is a lot of mistrust there. Put all that aside. So you have that conditioned um, approach to the Soviet Union. But then you have, you know, the Democrats have identified Putin and um, the Russian government, and, and even to an extent, just that the Russian people, uh, you know, as um, an anathema to democracy, mm. maybe not the Russian people, but himself and the government. And as you, as you mentioned, spent the last four years trying to take down this president for, for what they said was colluding with this, this, this evil government. And they can't get that out of their system. And a lot of it is, is Putin himself. It's his, his undemocratic behavior. It's the um, overhang of the uh, Soviet Union. I mean, it's all mixed in. You had people like, um, so, uh, you know, Victoria Nuland, who was under the Obama administration, was State Department official, who was in charge of promoting democracy there. Hillary Clinton. I mean, they, he, he, taking Putin down was sort of the, the, the golden ring of the Obama administration. That has not gone away. Those people are still working mm. in this government today. And then you combine that with all the politics of Russiagate. Um, this is why I feel that Biden is afraid to, 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 to sort of make this more of a diplomatic uh, project because he feels like he's, he has all of these Democrats watching him, all of these liberal interventionists watching him, breathing down his neck um, to really go after Putin and bring him down. And so I feel like he is under some pressure. Uh, I don't think he wants to go to war. I don't think anybody wants to go to war. But like you said, we've been, you know, we've sort of been conditioned to believe that this is this is almost an extent, an existential threat. 
And uh, the only way that Americans know how to deal with existential threats is to go after them militarily. And so and I do believe you have half the country and then you have a lot of Republicans, too, that that believe that that Putin um, is an extraordinary bad guy. Yeah, uh, no, it's certainly uh, very disconcerting in, on that front. You brought up the issue of NATO expansion. We have seen NATO expand a great deal over the last 30 years, including in Eastern U- Europe, including on Russia's borders, including places like uh, Estonia, places like Montenegro. How is America and how are American interests served by the continuing expansion of NATO, which comes with it, uh, an obligation to fight on behalf of that country if it's attacked? What does America gain by this ever-expanding NATO behemoth? You know, I don't think if you asked any American on the street today if they could actually answer that question. I feel personally, I feel NATO has become sort of a democratic club and either you're with us or you're against us. Well, guess what? We already have a club and it's called the United Nations. The the North American Treaty Alliance was supposed to be a Cold War defense system for our partners in Europe. And instead, it's become an ever expanding club. I mean, Turkey is in NATO. Nobody really knows why Turkey is in NATO. Half the time it's working against our interests over there. Um, but we don't have a, it, it doesn't have a defined mission anymore. If its mission was uh, brought about in the Cold War period and the Cold War is over, we can't just keep changing the goalposts. And everybody talks about it as a defender of democracy. What does that even mean? And so what happens when is that you, that it, you know, it's been expanded to these uh, post Soviet republics in a way that has that has just increasingly encroached on Russia's sphere of influence. And you could say, well, who? nobody deserves to have a sphere of influence. Well, guess what? We have a sphere of influence. Russia has a sphere of influence. We have been encroaching upon that for the last 30 years. If anybody were to do what we did uh, to Russia, to us, our hair would be on fire and we'd be starting wars everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. So <laughs> assuming assuming that the average rank-and-file American doesn't gain much by uh, pushing Ukraine towards NATO membership nor some of these other Eastern European countries, who is behind it and what is the motivation between the policymakers who are pushing for NATO expansion, be they in America or in other Western uh, republics? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I was probably being a little facetious. I know that the argument is that we're bringing these um, post-Soviet republics into the NATO bosom for every for Europe's own good. That we are protecting these countries from Russian advance, from Russian aggression. I just don't agree with that, and a lot of people that are smarter than me don't agree with that. But they because because they see that this increasing expansion has just agitated Russia and made the situation more tense and more militaristic there. Um, so I, I, if I could convey to the average American what I believe, which I believe I'm an average American, is that if you continue to poke and agitate uh, Russia, it, it's going to force you to become more alert and more on edge and have to put more troops in and uh, spend more money on NATO because 
because things are always going to be on edge over there. And so, and I'm trying to think of your original question <laughs> because I, I it, it was I, just I, about what the who, who's driving this NATO oh, expansion and what's it all about. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, first of all, you know, this we're talking about great power politics, and so everybody wants to be on top. So you have that going on. Um, but, I mean, think about it from the re- perspective of the expanding federal government here in the United States. Once you give any agency or program a mission, they are um, committed to keeping that mission alive. You, you have, they have to sustain their very existence. NATO is not going to say, you know what, our mission has been you know, complete. You know, the Cold War is over. Let's go home. No. So they have to keep finding more wars to fight more fronts, you know, to man. And this is, this is the perfect example. Uh, they are, what's driving this, this is bureaucracy. This is, these are the, the military uh, architectures that have built up in each of these countries uh, and, and writ large in the region. Um, you're, they don't want to go home. They don't want to pack it in. They love getting American largesse uh, to, 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 to drill, drill, to exercise, they get tons of materiel from us. They get tons of help, assistance, um, training. This is an entire ecosystem. Mm. NATO is so. Why in the heck are they going to advocate for uh, shrinking down or not expanding further? Um, but the, the fact is, we shouldn't accept that as just a, 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 the new normal or a reality. You know, it's up to us, the, the taxpayers, to say. We don't want this, sure. you know, and just like I fight every day to to keep the military industrial complex here in check. You know, this is just an extension of this on the on the world stage. Ke- Kelly Vlahos, uh, the co-host of the Crashing the War Party podcast. Kelly, if uh, people haven't heard that podcast before, what's it all about? Uh, what can people look forward to listening to? Well, we're talking about stuff like just like what you and I were talking about. We're talking about. Uh, U.S. military policy, national security policy, foreign policy, what it means to regular Americans, and trying to take a different perspective than what you hear in the mainstream media. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the media in this regard, the hive corporate media, has been parroting the narrative on, on Russia. It's very simplistic. We must get Putin. We will do everything because he is threatening uh, the international world order. Well, there's a lot more to it, just like we were talking about just now. And so we try to do that on the show, whether it's Russia or uh, Iran or Middle East or, you know, the military industrial complex. You know, uh, we just take the headlines and we try to go a little deeper. Wonderful. It's a terrific podcast. I listen to it regularly. Kelly, I always feel a little bit smarter whenever we get to speak. I hope we uh, get to chat again soon. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.